You take your Bibles and turn them with me to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua 7. Did you get the wrong scripture in there? You got it? Okay, great. So when uh, chapter 6 ended, we saw last week um, Israel was on a very high and victorious note. Uh, as the uh, people of God had been moving into the promised land, and Israel's entrance into Canaan is fulfilling multiple promises from God simultaneously. Uh, there is, of course, the larger promise from God that Canaan would be their land, and that in the land they would live there as God's special people, mediating the truth and blessing of God to the surrounding people so that eventually uh, the entire world would enjoy the blessing of God. But in addition, Israel's entrance into the land was God's means of, uh, to bring about God's judgment upon the Canaanites, as for hundreds of years, this people had been in extreme sin against God, involved in all kinds of perversions, even sacrificing their own children to their satanic god, Molech. And God had been very patient and gracious with the Canaanites for hundreds of years, but even God's extreme patience comes to an end. The penalty for sin, the Bible says, is death, and so Israel would be God's sword of justice. And so, now to help us get our bearings, uh, let, me, uh, let me put up a map. Do we have that map up there? No, we don't? Okay, I was going to put up a map. Um, you'll just have to envision it all in your head. Oh, there's, there's the map. All right, great. Like that. Ethan is amazing. He just conjures up things. Good job. Um, Okay, so uh, we started out in uh, Joshua chapter 1. They were encamped here at uh, Shittim, and uh, this is where God told Joshua to be strong and courageous. In chapter 2, Joshua sends the spies on a secret mission to Jericho. They check out the city. They sneak in. They meet uh, Rahab, a Canaanite woman who has uh, come to know the one true God. She wants to depart from her old gods and her, old, and her, and her people and, and uh, submit to the one true God and become a part of Israel. Uh, spies come back, back, tell Joshua that Jericho is ripe for the picking. Uh, in, the, uh, in the subsequent chapters, uh, there is a, a problem, and that's this. That's the Jordan River. And, uh, and so we read about how, Josh, uh, how God parted the waters of the Jordan River and allowed Israel to cross over on dry land. Then as we continued reading through Joshua, they ended up camped here at Gilgal, where they reinstituted the, uh, the practice of circumcision and also celebrated the Passover, uh, just rededicating, recommitting themselves uh, to God. And then last week we were in chapter 6, and that's where they attacked Jericho, and through the power of God, the walls came tumbling down, and the Israelites uh, marched in and took the city easily. And so now, the next stop for Israel is this place right here, Ai. And that's what we're reading about today, and also we'll read about it next week uh, as well. And so, at the end of chapter 6, Israel is riding high, Jericho is overthrown, God's presence is with the people, they're on their way to Ai, but after six chapters that are hopeful and victorious and upbeat, the the story suddenly brings us a surprising twist with some very powerful and important messages for us today. So let's hear these messages now. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our God. We are in Joshua chapter 
7. God's word says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let, only, let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, from the, went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherbarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the households that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered, Joshua, truly I've sinned against the Lord of Is God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. 
And Joshua and all Israel took with him, with him, took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Let's pray. Father, we come to another hard and challenging word in the book of of Joshua. And uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, give me guidance as the preacher this morning to rightly divide your word. I pray that you would give uh, the congregation ears to hear your word and help us to believe your word, be challenged by your word, convicted where need be, and blessed by your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our, our text can be divided really into five parts, and the first thing that we see in our story today is a sudden defeat, a sudden defeat. In verse 2, we find Joshua and his men uh, in the ruins of Jericho. They're still basking in their victory, and Joshua's eyes are already on the next city to capture. And so Joshua sends out men to do some reconnaissance uh, on Ai. And in verse 3, the men return with a glowing report. Uh, They said, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. They are few. So things are looking good. This is going to be easy. This is going to be a piece of cake. We'll send out a few men. We'll be done. We'll be back by lunchtime. And so they go. And verse 4, they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. So God withdrew His presence, His hand of blessing, and so Joshua's forces failed and they were turned back. And instead of the Canaanites melting with fear, as we read about in chapters 2 and 5, we have here a surprising reversal. It's Israel that's now quaking with fear and confusion, and so we have to ask why. What went wrong? Well, the end of verse 1 tells you the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And why is that? Well, look at the beginning of verse 1. The people of Israel broke faith. They broke faith. Uh, The Hebrew term there has to do with a breach of trust. In fact, that, that phrase is used to describe adultery. Israel committed spiritual adultery. They betrayed God. Now, how did they do that? The text says they broke faith in regard to the devoted things. What's that? Well, if you remember from last week in chapter 6, you can turn back there if you want, Israel was to take the city of Jericho and it and everything in it was to be devoted to the Lord for destruction. But you can see in verse 18 of chapter 6, the text says, you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So with the exception of Rahab and her family, Israel was to go into Jericho and destroy everyone and everything. 
But it wasn't just the people that were devoted to destruction, it was their possessions because a, uh, this was a physical illustration of a spiritual principle of holiness and separation. The Canaanites were a very wicked people, as we talked about in detail last week, and they were set apart for God's judgment. God's people were to be holy and set apart for God's redemptive purposes, and and there should be a spiritual separation between God's people and the ungodly. God's people were to be different, to live different, to act different. They were to reflect the goodness and purity of God in stark contrast to the ways of the evil Canaanites. And the total destruction of Jericho was to be a vivid and graphic picture of that destruction that or that separation and a picture it was it was uh, meant to be a picture of the all-consuming judgment of a holy god who cannot look upon evil and the items that they did not destroy would be turned over to god given to the treasury of the lord they were to be dedicated to god as an act of worship and devotion and not to be used by israel for their own purposes and it was in this matter that Israel broke faith. Some of these things were taken as spoils. And because of that, verse 1 says that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now, let me pause there. I recognize many people today don't like the idea of a God who gets angry. But if your God does not get angry, you're not worshiping the God of Scripture. You're worshiping a God of your imagination. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. But but you need to know that you are living in rebellion against a holy God. Uh, You're going your own way. You're doing your own thing. And, And one of the most important things for you to know about God today is that He is angry with you. Scripture says in Psalm chapter 7 that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And while we are often focused on how that's offensive to people, and you even have some churches and pastors that shy away from verses like that one, uh, interestingly enough, the Bible isn't at all worried about you being offended by God as much as it is telling you that you should be worried that God is offended by you and your sin, because God is a good God. Just like you look around at the world today and you see evil and injustice running rampant and it makes you angry and you want something done about it for the sake of justice, so God looks at your sin, the heinous sin of being in rebellion against Him, and it rightfully makes Him angry and something must be done about it for the sake of judgment. And so, my friend, your biggest problem isn't relationship problems with others or financial problems or issues at work or at home. Your biggest problem is that you have broken faith with God and He's angry with you. And here in Joshua 7, God's anger burns against the people, and here it's manifested in the withdrawing of His blessing and His help from Israel. And without God, they can't even win the smallest and simplest battle. Now, this disaster shakes the entire community, and there is great confusion going on, which leads to my second observation. We see a desperate prayer, a desperate prayer. Look at verse 6. Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, and he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. 
Now, the tearing of clothes and, and, and the dust on the head was a sign of intense grief and mourning and distress before God. And notice Joshua is bowed low before the ark of the Lord. He's not worshiping the ark. The ark is a symbol. It's a symbol of God's throne, of his very presence, a presence that was not with the people at Ai. Now, let's remember that at this point in the story, Joshua doesn't know everything that we know. We have one important detail, one important piece of information that he doesn't have, and that's that a man named Achan has stolen some of the devoted things. Now, I wonder what you thought about Joshua's prayer when you first heard me read it. Is that a good prayer? Look at verse 7. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. What do you think about that? Joshua is panicking. He is coming to wrong conclusions, and here he's even implying that God is reneging on his promise to be faithful to them. Uh, Look at what he says next. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. In other words... If only we hadn't come over here in the first place, if only we had stayed where we were, things would have been so much better for us. Now, does that sound familiar? If you know your Bible, it should. It sounds exactly like the cries of that first fearful, faithless generation of Israelites 40 years ago. Uh, Those folks who were always afraid that God wouldn't deliver on His promise to protect them and provide for them and keep His promises to them, and they always felt like things were better off for them in the past, better off for them as slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh's rule than wandering in the wilderness under God's rule. And it seems like Joshua is, is, is falling into that same kind of mindset, and Joshua's tailspin continues in verses 8 and 9. He says, "'Oh Lord, what can I say?' When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Folks, Joshua is totally freaking out. He's gone from losing 36 men, and I understand that's no small thing, but he's gone from losing 36 men to now in his head, all 2 million Israelites being extinguished by their enemies. Joshua is descending into fear. Uh, he's, he's, he's not obeying God's charge in chapter 1 to be strong and courageous. Uh, things are not going well in the moment, and he, he's losing focus on both the promises and the character of God. And in his fear, Joshua, in his prayer, has gotten to the point where he is inventing scenarios in his mind that have no basis in reality whatsoever. He is imagining the entire nation being exterminated. Now, Joshua is doing what we often do. Joshua is entering into a difficult situation and his thoughts are out of control as opposed to being controlled and governed by God's Word. Don't you do this? Or am I the only one? Things become very tight financially, and we panic and we freak out in spite of God's promise to provide for all of our needs. We face a week full of tough meetings and confrontations and challenges, and we're bound up by anxiety because we don't think we're going to make it, even though God promises His all sufficient grace to strengthen us in all things. 
We go into an evangelistic encounter full of fear, even though Jesus promised that as we would go and fulfill the Great Commission, He would be with us always, even to the end of the age. You see, so much of our anxiety and fear comes from the fact that we don't Philippians 4, 8 our thoughts. You know what Philippians 4, 8 says? Think on things that are true, whatever is true, think on these things. At least half, if not more, of my counseling situations revolve around a failure of people to Philippians 4, 8 their thoughts. And if we aren't thinking on things that are true, on things that He has said in His Word, in things that He said in this book, and the promises He has made, we've already lost the battle. We fling open the door to confusion and fear and a lack of strength and courage. Joshua should know better. God had promised through Israel that the whole world would be blessed. That's the thing that's true. Through Israel, the world will be blessed. If that's true, then Israel being cut off from the earth by the Canaanites is not true. It won't happen because everything that God promises comes to pass, period. And God has promised to protect them and fight for them as long as they continue to obey Him. And in fact, in chapter 6, as they were about to invade Jericho, Joshua himself, with his own lips, said to his army that disobedience would bring trouble upon Israel, in particular, disobedience in regards to the devoted things. Joshua said this, and yet he forgot his own sermon. He can't connect the dots. He's beginning to suspect maybe there's an issue with God. As I heard someone once say, in the emergency of the moment, he has forgotten the promises of the past. I wonder if you ever do that. Now, on the other hand, there are some things commendable about Joshua here as well. Uh, one of the most commendable things is that he actually gets down to the business of praying. Too often, we don't. Too often for us, prayer is a last resort. But Joshua was a man of prayer. He may have been confused. Some of his thoughts may not have been right. But one thing he does do right is that he goes to God because he knows that in him there is a solution and there is a way forward. And and so before we spend too much time picking apart Joshua's prayer, perhaps we should first ask ourselves, do we pray at all? And secondly, Joshua ends his prayer with this one great concern Look at the end of verse 9. He says, And what will you do, God, for your great name? That's commendable. It's not just that Joshua is trying to save his own skin or Israel's skin. He has a deep concern for God's name, for God's glory, for God's reputation. I think that's at the heart of Joshua's concern, that God not be seen as weak or small or untrustworthy in the eyes of the Canaanites, but that God would be magnified and would be seen as great. And indeed, that is the primary reason for Israel's existence and for the existence of the church today that should be the driving goal of all of God's people That should be the driving goal of Harbin's church, that that God through us would be seen as great and as wonderful as He really is. So after this desperate prayer of Joshua, we see a surprising answer. 
a surprising answer. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? It's, hard, it's almost hard to believe that God would tell you to stop praying. But that's what God does here. Sometimes there's a time to stop praying and to act. God goes on to say, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them away or put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. So there's the answer. There's the problem there. If Joshua is really concerned about God's glory, if he's really concerned about God's reputation, then what Joshua needs to know is that there is sin in the camp of God's people, and it must be dealt with. And who has sinned? Look at verse 11. Israel has sinned and taken some of the devoted things. And who has, as a result, become devoted for destruction? Verse 12. Israel has. Go back to verse 1. Who has broken faith? Israel has, okay? But who has taken the devoted things? Second half of verse 1, Achan. Achan was the one. And, and since Achan was the one, who then did the anger of the Lord burn against? You would expect it to say Achan. doesn't say that. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. What do you think about that? What, what, what do you make of that? Does that seem right to you? Does that seem fair? It was Achan who sinned. It was Achan who did this. Why be angry at the whole people? Why allow Israel to suffer defeat in the battle of Ai? Why not just take Achan out in his sleep? Just, just kill him in the middle of the night and, and then let Israel move on to victory. You know, one thing that I really couldn't stand in elementary school was when one kid in the class did something bad, and the entire class got penalized for it. I hated that. That ever happened to you? It just didn't seem right. But there is something kind of biblical about it. What we see in Joshua 7 is, is an example of a concept that is woven throughout the Bible. And God's plan of redemption, he never meant for his people to be running around as isolated individuals on their own little isolated islands. A part of the plan of God is not just to save individual persons, but to save a people set apart for himself and for his purposes. Uh, to build a community of people that belong to him. And what we see with Old Testament Israel and with the New Testament church is that while there is certainly individual accountability, God also deals with the people as a group, as a corporate entity. Theologians call this corporate solidarity, uh, where God does not see people as individuals only, but as people connected to one another, people who are so tightly bonded and united that whatever is happening to the part has an effect on the whole, where the actions of one can affect the many. And this concept offends our 21st century Western sensibilities because we in America are extremely individualistic, aren't we? Uh, everything is about me. My preferences, my choices, my rights, what, uh, what I do is my business, and as long as it's not hurting anybody else, who cares? 
Uh, We are very individualistic, and we resist the idea of being intimately tied to a larger group. And yet God has woven uh, the reality of corporate solidarity into the very fabric of the human race. It's how God has chosen to make things work. In fact, we see it at the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, When Adam, the first man, sins against God and he falls away, yes, he brings guilt upon himself, but he doesn't just bring guilt upon himself. The Scriptures tell us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's corporate solidarity. One man as the representative of the group, namely the human race. That one man sinned, and we in Adam all sinned. Adam's guilt was imputed or transferred to us. And of course, we're guilty because of our own sin too. But the point of Romans 5 is our solidarity with Adam as man's representative. Now, in Joshua 7, Achan thinks his sin is private. And he thinks his sin is hidden. And he thinks that he's not hurting or affecting anyone else. Who cares if he grabs a fancy coat and keeps it for himself? Is that really going to hurt anything? No, nobody else knows, and what no one knows won't hurt them. And yet Achan isn't just his own person. He's a part of something much bigger. He is in solidarity with the nation of Israel. So when he sins, Israel sins, and Israel suffers for it. And Achan's sin had a ripple effect in the community. Joshua went into an emotional tailspin of anxiety and despair because of what Achan did. Thirty-six Israelite families lost their fathers in the battle of Ai because of Achan's sin. And while I suspect Achan's immediate family was in on the cover-up, Achan was the head of the household, and his disobedience leads to his very family being destroyed. And indeed, his whole guilt is imputed to all of Israel. And one lesson here is that so-called secret sin hurts. And this is not just an Old Testament Israel thing. It's a New Testament church thing. Your sin affects and hurts not just you, but the entire community of God's people around you, whether you know it or not. And I think that idea is, is so foreign to modern American Christians uh, that, that the... the The American church has been so influenced by the culture that we have made our Christianity a very personal and very private thing, where it's just about me and God. But in truth, it's not just about you and God. Uh, We are connected to each other so much that the Apostle Paul compares the church to a human body. One body with different parts, all related and interdependent. And and he writes that if one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so if you are a member of Harbin's church, then your private sins in your mind, behind closed doors, on the internet what you do with your money, all of those things are the business of other members of this congregation. Single people, what you do with your boyfriend or girlfriend, whether you are honoring God in sexual purity or not, is not just your business. It's the church's business. 
Now, of course, the Bible doesn't expect perfection in the church. There are no perfect Christians. All Christians stumble and fall in their fight against sin. Fighting against sin is normal, healthy Christianity. And so, therefore, Harbin's church needs to be a safe place for you to confess sin and get help in dealing with it as we together, as a family, fight sin together. The problem is when we stop fighting and we make peace with our sin and we cherish our sin, and we hang on to it, and and we don't want to deal with it, and, and we cover it up because we like it so much. The problem is when we are like Achan. And just like undealt with sin in the camp of Israel led to disaster for Israel, so undealt with sin in our church right here can lead to disaster here. You think about the, the warnings to the churches in, in Revelation 2 and 3, where the sins of some caused Jesus to threaten to withdraw His presence and His blessing from those churches. In fact, He even threatens to shut the church in Ephesus down. Or, you think about the Apostle Paul's words, he writes that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, just a little sin in the community of God's people affects everybody. Just one person with one hidden, cherished, undealt with sin can negatively impact everyone else. Have you ever thought about that? Do you believe that? It's, it's biblical. Do, do, you, do you think that way in regards to your relationship with the larger church, the, the congregation here at Harbin's? Or, or is your spiritual walk more of a private and personal thing? The author of Hebrews gives one specific example with the sin of bitterness. I, want, I wonder if that's, is that an issue with you, bitterness? Is that a secret sin? Is that something that you're holding on to and, and you're not willing to deal with it? Maybe bitterness towards another person? Uh, bitter about your current circumstances in life? The author of Hebrews says this to members of the church. He says, see to it that No root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. Now, that scripture is an allusion to another scripture, which is Deuteronomy 29.10, where Moses warns about the Israelite who puts up a front, and, and he fakes it like he acts like he's committed to God, and yet in his heart he goes astray, but he thinks he'll be safe. He won't be found out. He can live a double life, cherish, cherishing his sin and still somehow staying off of God's radar. And the author of Hebrews here in this text is saying that that kind of person causes trouble and defiles many in the church. The, the cherished, undealt with sin of one person is like a virus that can spread and infect and damage and ruin others. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews says that this will cause trouble. Trouble. Trouble is a theme of this section of Joshua. We already saw in Joshua 6 uh, that to sin in regards to the devoted things would bring trouble to the people. Achan's name sounds like the Hebrew word for trouble. And the word trouble itself comes up a couple of times in chapter 7. This is Achan's legacy. Indeed, 1 Chronicles 2.7 calls Achan a troubler of Israel. 
And we as Christians should ask ourselves, are, are, are we, through our secret hidden sins, a troubler of Harbin's church? Are, are, are we weakening our church? You see, the Bible is telling us that God wants to build a people that are holy, that aren't like the rest of the world, uh, people that are shining forth the goodness and the purity and the integrity and the good character of God. And if you want Harbin's church to be a strong church, and, and I'm assuming you do, you, you want this church to be strong. Uh, you want this church to be a church that is growing and thriving in the gospel. You want this church to, to be a church that is powerfully evangelistic and on mission and being a light in a dark place, impacting our community and even the world. If those are the things that you want, then we must pay careful attention to how we as individuals live Monday through Saturday. We've got to pay attention to how we live in our so-called private lives and, and in our homes and, and with our families and when no one else is looking. And we must not be afraid to get into one another's lives in this church and stir up one another to love and, and stir up one another to good works, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Uh, holding each other accountable and being accountable. When you join Harbin's church you agree to abide by a membership covenant. And the purpose of it is not just to give you a clear biblical vision for how you should live your life, uh, but also its purpose is to, uh, for you to help others to live according to it as well, uh, to, to hold others accountable to it. That's something that you're agreeing to when you join this church. And so, we must not be afraid to be a church that is living Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice, by the way, gentleness, gentleness, gentleness. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Don't beat him over the head with your 50-pound Bible. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, just don't think about, well, these, all these poor people need my help, and I, I've got it all together. No, he's saying, be careful. You too can fall into temptation as well. Be careful. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We cannot bear one another's burdens if we're not involved in one another's lives. Friends, we, we, we ultimately need to recognize what Joshua learned. Joshua's prayer was so concerned about the glory of God, that God's glory would be seen by the world through them. And Joshua learned that if he was really concerned about the glory of God, then he needed to realize that the greatest enemy to blocking the manifestation of God's glory in Israel was not the enemies out there, not Ai, not the Canaanites. The greatest enemy was within. The, the sin within our own hearts, and that such sin must be immediately dealt with, not just for the sake of us individually, but for the entire people of God and the glory of God. And so, after the desperate prayer and the surprising answer, we see a forced confession, a forced confession. Sadly, Achan did not see the seriousness of his sin he didn't think it was a big deal, and he still held out the notion that he could actually keep this covered up, that he could bluff his way out of this situation. 
And so in verses 16 through 19, we go through this elaborate process of exposure. First, God singles out the tribe of Judah, then the clan of the Zerahites, then the family of Zabdi, and then from that family, things are finally narrowed down to Achan. And you think, well, why this long process? God already knew who was responsible. Why not just tell Joshua and be done with it? Well, because I think First of all, gathering all of the people and involving them in this process underscored again this principle of corporate solidarity. Uh, We're all in this together. Israel has sinned, and so all Israel is brought forward. But I also think this process demonstrated something of God's patience. Achan had ample opportunity to confess and repent, didn't he? He's allowing lots of time to go by in this process, and he must be hoping that the arrow will point eventually in a different direction. But things continue to get narrower and narrower, and the arrow is getting closer and closer, and he is still hanging on, isn't he? He's still thinking about those goodies that are buried in his tent, and he does not want to give them up. And, And as the noose gets tighter, Achan continues to be silent. And I think that shows something of the hardness of his heart. Indeed, it seems like he would have been willing for someone else to take the fall in his place. And by the time you get to verse 20 and his confession, it is only because he has no choice. He admits what he has done, but he only does it because he got caught. And look what he confesses. Verse 21, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, that's Babylon, And 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan's sin was the sin of covetousness. Not what some of us would think is the worst sin in the world. But it is deadly. And what is covetousness? It is wanting and desiring something so much that it becomes more important to you than God. Covetousness is not necessarily wanting something that in and of itself is bad. I mean, you you can covet things that in and of themselves could be good. Uh, Food is good. Uh, Having a car is good. Having a home, a roof over your head, that's good. But you can covet those things, can't you? And you can get to a point where you can't be satisfied in God because you think that the thing that you covet is what you really need. This, this is what covetousness is. And, and the Bible equates covetousness with idolatry. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. Now do you see how serious this is? Idolatry is forsaking the one true God to worship a false God. And so we are reminded again that you don't have to worship statues to be an idolater. You just have to love money or comfort or health or relationships or your family or entertainment more than you love God. And you love these things so much that you will disobey God to get that thing that you want. And that's exactly what Achan did. He saw this wealth that could set him and his family up with peace and comfort and security. 
I, I, I don't know if this is true or not. I haven't done a lot of research on this. I read one commentator who had estimated that the, the value of these items was, was worth a, a lifetime worth of wages for someone. Again, I don't know if that's true or not, but that, it's a lot of, I, I think we're looking at significant riches here and, and something possibly that could have set him and his family up for years. Can you imagine that? If you stumbled upon something and, and, and if you took that thing, you knew uh, you could pay off your mortgage right now and, uh, and you wouldn't have to worry about anything for the next 30 years financially. That would be tempting. Well, Achan sees this and he becomes an idolater. He decided that the worth that was found in having that wealth was better than the worth that was found in having God. And brothers and sisters, that is what you and I do whenever we cherish hidden, undealt with sin in our hearts. We become idolaters, and we hurt ourselves, and we hurt our church because of it. And here's an interesting irony. I don't know if you noticed this, but in chapter 2, Rahab, the Canaanite, the one who was an idolater and outside of the people of God, she places her hope and her allegiance with God and was saved from destruction and brought into the people of God. That's to be contrasted with Achan. Achan here is the foil to Rahab in the book of Joshua. And you have Achan who at least outwardly was a part of Israel. He was among those going into Jericho and waging war against those pagan idolaters. And yet he turns out to be more like a Canaanite than Rahab as he covets and hides his sin of idolatry. And what happens to him? He's expelled and cut off from the people of God, which leads then to the next point, which is, oh, we don't have it there. The next one was supposed to be a swift purging. It's not up there. Just imagine it flashing on the screen in your minds, a swift purging. Joshua takes Achan outside the camp, which is, which is symbolic of an unclean thing being removed from God's people who are supposed to be pure and holy. And they go to the valley of Achor. That word Achor means trouble. Here we go again. Achor sounds a lot like Achan, doesn't it? And it becomes a play on words in the chapter here. Joshua says Achan has become Achor. Achan is a troubler of Israel, and, and for that, he brings trouble on himself and on his family. The, the, the gold and the cloak he loves so much are taken away. His donkeys and sheep and all that he possessed are taken away from him, and Achan is stoned, then burned. Then a great heap of stones is piled up as a sobering testimony to the end result of the one who seeks life outside of God. In the end, Achan Achan succumbs to the curse of death. In the New Covenant, there is no capital punishment in the people of God. Aren't you grateful for that? But there is what is called church discipline. Uh, that, that when a member of a local church is engaged in persistent, willful, unrepentant sin, uh, God calls the church to confront that and, and to, to help that person to see their wrongdoing and to repent of that and re- to return to God. But if the rebellion persists, the New Testament actually calls churches to expel such a person from the membership of the church and regard him as an unbeliever with the hope that such a person 
might then come to their senses and repent, but also so that the church, which is to be a holy people, might purge that ongoing hard-hearted sin from their midst for their own protection and for the sake of their witness to a watching world. Because we as God's people are to live in such a way that signals to the world that what we have in Jesus is a better treasure than anything else the world might offer us, including sin. And yet when the church lives just like the world, indulging in and endorsing sin, we devalue Jesus in the eyes of the world, and so God is not glorified in our midst. Well, Achan, in his coveting, did not value God, and so he tried to grab the world. He thought his riches would give him life, but his sad ending is really a foretaste of hell, of the final judgment where Jesus says of, the wor- of that worthless servant, even what he has will be taken away and he will be cast out into the outer darkness, banished from the enjoyment of the presence of God. It's a sobering ending and warning to a very sad story. But we who are standing on this side of redemptive history catch a glimmer of hope in this dark chapter. Where is it? There it is. Huh, a swift urging? That was supposed to be a swift purging. <laughs> We're a little mixed up this morning. But the next point is a glimmer of hope. I think the key to this, this whole episode is found in verse 12 of chapter 7. It's the threat of God's abandonment. Now look there with me again in verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. That threat is huge in the context of Joshua because the one thing we've been seeing over and over again in this book is the assurance of God's presence. We saw it in Joshua chapter 1. God said, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And now suddenly God is saying, I won't be with you anymore. And so we see again that sin brings about a a separation between God and the sinner. But that's not the end of the story. He says, look again, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. The one thing that will restore the blessing of God's presence when the sin is dealt with and purged from the people. And of course, once Achan and the devoted things are destroyed... Chapter 8 immediately begins with God saying, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Things are right between God and the people again because his anger was turned away. His anger was turned away, but not forever. Because if you follow the story of Israel through the Bible, the people continue to be unfaithful. The people continue to sin. Uh, They continue to break faith like an adulteress, chasing after other gods, and Israel is continuously chastened by God. And it seems like the shadow of the valley of Achor and sin and death will always have the last word. But the prophet Hosea, in comparing the wayward people to a spouse who has continuously broken faith with God, promises a new day, a day of restoration, promises a new covenant. And in that day, God says, you will call me my husband, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. That which once seemed utterly hopeless, sin and death, 
will be reversed. And in chapter 3, Hosea writes that this new hope will come through one who is called David the king. Now, of course, when Hosea wrote wrote this, David was already long dead, and so he speaks of a new David to come. And so Jesus, from the tribe of Judah, like Achan, by the way, Jesus, a descendant of King David, comes, and while Achan's sin brought trouble upon the people, his sin imputed to them, Jesus had no sin, and so he could take the people's sin upon himself, our sins imputed to him. Achan died for his own sin, Jesus died for ours. And the author of Hebrews says that Jesus suffered outside the camp. Jesus took our sins on Him. He became the unclean thing, even more wretched than Achan, because all the sins of His people were put on Him, and He was publicly executed outside the camp. Why? Why did this happen to Jesus? The author of Hebrews says, in order to sanctify the people through His blood. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so going back to any friend here who is not a Christian, this, this is the good news. The anger that God had towards sinners is turned away as it is poured on Jesus on the cross so that God would no longer be angry at any who hope in him. That's that's the good news. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's Jesus. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And friends, that is where corporate solidarity is a wonderful thing. Are you still offended by it? Uh, this, This is where we don't want to be solely individuals living and dying on the basis of our own record of obedience. Because if we do... We too should be buried under a pile of stones with Achan. More than that, we too deserve the eternal punishment of hell. But if we are united to Jesus by faith, God treats us not according to our abysmal record of obedience, but on the basis of Jesus' wonderfully perfect record. And so we are told this glorious news that God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, unbeliever, believe. Receive Him by faith today, and experience His salvation. And believer, Know that the trouble of sin has been removed from your back, not so that you could keep on indulging in it, but so that you might be free from it, being holy, being part of His people, so that the world may see in you, in us, the treasure that Jesus is, and in seeing that they might too be blessed. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for getting me through a very difficult sermon. And Father, I pray that whatever 
was said this morning that was confusing and not of value and not helpful and not rightly representing you or your word, I pray that you would eliminate those things from our attention and those things that were said and taught and preached that magnify Jesus, that point to the hope of the gospel, that are truthful about you, that rightly divide the word of truth, I pray that those things would remain in our hearts and would change our lives. And I thank you that we, the people of God, have a representative that has done it all for us. He's borne it all for us, borne the sin, but also was obedient for us. And so now the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us, and we are seen not as treacherous like Achan. We are seen as perfect like Jesus. And so there is no need for us to fear judgment, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.